0: Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, my friends, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, which is where we will pick up our verse-by-verse study through uh, the book of Mark. This morning, as we continue our study, I think we're going to come across one of, perhaps, potentially the most exhilarating yet terrifying Accounts in the li- lives of the disciples um, here, uh, which should be interesting. Uh, terrifying. This is cool. It's Halloween time. Uh, I think this would have qualified as one of those movies that you go purposefully to scare yourself. Um, and I don't know why we do that, and yet we do. I've been telling you the parallel passages. The parallel passages for this particular uh, account that we have is Matthew chapter eight, verses twenty-eight to thirty-four, and Luke chapter eight, verses twenty-six to 39. And as we have been seeing, it it is helpful to kind of go back, look at those other accounts, see if there's just a little bit of an insight that this gospel writer gives that the others haven't and uh, shed a little bit more light on it. And we'll we'll go back and forth from time to time to those, but you may want to read those on your own. But today we're going to look at Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20, uh, Jesus's healing of the demon-possessed man. Um, So that's fun. Let's go before the Lord. Lord, we, uh, we do invite your presence even further into our midst. Lord, I, I guess more properly, we, uh, we petition you to come into your presence. And Lord, we thank you for the time of worship, uh, just to consider who you are in your glory. And now, Lord, as we sit under your word, we pray that you would use it in our lives to teach us, challenge us, grow us, inspire us, convict us if need be. And so bless your word, as it goes forth, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Let's read together, starting in verse one. We won't read the entire account right now, but it says, "Now they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself himself with a stone or with stones. Chapter five is an interesting chapter. Um, not every single account that we have in the gospel of Mark goes one event after the other event after the other event. One of the things that Mark will do in his writing style is he'll take a series of events and sort of link them together, lump them together to sort of make the point about uh, a particular topic, and he'll bring those stories together. Chapter 5, what we have is Jesus showing his absolute power over the demonic, a little bit later in the chapter, over the diseased, and then in the end of the chapter, even over death itself. And so what Mark has done is he's linked together these three most hopeless circumstances possible. And he's shined or shown light into the midst of those. It's a beautiful chapter. It's uh, two sets or three sets of stories that should give every one of us hope of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. And here, as I've already begun to read to you, you have this fellow, this demon-possessed man. I'll I'll go back and forth. Sometimes he's referred to as the demoniac or the man who was formerly a demoniac. This man possessed, we're going to see later on in the chapter, with many, many demons here, a most hopeless circumstance. And remember now the context. Go back and just kind of peek at chapter 4. That's when the the event that came just before this is they were out in the midst of the Sea of Galilee and a great and terrible storm had whipped itself up, perhaps even uh, demonic in nature, to the point where the disciples were freaked out, scared, we're going to die, Jesus, don't you care about us, all these things here. That's sort of the context. That storm. Just before Jesus says, "Let's go to the other side." Here, they, they hit this menacing storm, and then they that is calmed, and they begin to sail over. Looking at verse one, it says they come to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And so, imagine these disciples as they land there on the shore of Gadara or Gerasa, and I'll explain talk about that in a moment here. It's dark outside. Remember, it says when they took off, it was evening, and so it's dark. They come to an unfamiliar land. They're wet. The adrenaline of just having saved themselves by dumping water off, that has all kind of come back down. They're probably tired. You have this whole circumstance. I imagine their shoulders are tight and they're tense from everything that has been going on, and they land now on this shore of this unfamiliar place. That side, you see the map up here, that side of the Sea of Galilee, again, if the Sea of Galilee is like a clock, anywhere from about 1 o'clock to about 6 o'clock, that was uh, Gentile land. And there were all sorts of rumors about what the Gentiles did in that land. It was an area of land where most Jewish people did not go. Maybe likely, I I can't say that for certain, but almost likely that these disciples had never been there before. And the rumors were out there about the crazy people that lived over in that area of the Sea of Galilee. Nutty people. They don't wear clothes. They're crazy. And then don't you know that the first guy that encounters them is a guy who doesn't wear any clothes, cuts himself screaming, yelling. And I'm sure in their minds they're thinking, I knew all these people were like this here. Let's get out of here as quickly as possible. And yet that's where Jesus said we are going to go. Uh, Gadara, also called Gerasa, is on, as I said, the Gentile portion. It was one of ten cities that made up what is called the Decapolis. They are Gentile cities in and around the area of Israel. Some of them actually in Israel that the Romans essentially took over, and others of them on the coast around it. And good Jews stayed away from those areas, except for Jesus. Jesus says, come on, guys, this is where we're going. And again, you see on the map where it is located. You put all the pieces of the puzzle together. It's dark. They're tired. They're wet. They're probably cranky. The adrenaline has left them, and so now they're um, fatigued from that. They're going to this uncertain area of land. The specific area of land that they end up in is a cemetery. Why are we here in a cemetery? Now, I don't believe in, like, ghosts and all those kinds of things. I still don't go wandering through cemeteries at night. Uh, Because other crazy people might believe in those things. It may be in there and things like that. And so that's where they end up. It's a little bit freaky. The only light is the moonlight that is shining. And of course, don't you know it? Look at verse 2. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Of course, there was a man with an unclean spirit stepping out as they arrived there in the evening. And here is this guy. Now, our Matthew passage, I told you about the parallel passages. The Matthew passage tells us there was two men, two demon-possessed men that come running to the edge and chase, try to chase Jesus away. Luke uh, and Mark, they choose to just focus on the one of the two men. I suspect because the one of the two men was radically transformed and into the future when they're writing this, people knew the one of the two men. Now, some would say, well, that's a contradiction. It's not a contradiction, because if there were two guys, then there was, then there was one guy as well. Uh, and so Mark and Luke, they choose to focus on the one guy. So one guy, in this case, comes to Jesus. Notice it says in verse 3 that he was a man living among the tombs. Now, that area of land has a lot of uh, cave-like things Uh, And it was a limestone, which was a soft stone, which means you could make a cave if you wanted to. And so that's where the people would bury their dead in those tombs. I picture the man, based on the passages here, having sort of these little shackle uh, bracelets, like Wonder Woman kind of bracelets hanging from him with little pieces of chain that previously were together, but he would break these chains apart. And so he's got these little shackles with little pieces of chains hanging from them. The Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 8, it tells us that the man was running around naked. They didn't wear any clothes uh, and live that way in that area. Verse 5 of our Mark passage here uh, shows us that it's not hard for us to imagine that he was bloody and scarred because he was continually cutting himself, as it says, night and day. And so this is quite an evening for these disciples. First, they had the terror of the storm. Then they had the terror of Jesus' ability to calm the storm, and now they have the terror of this guy coming to them. I don't know if you've ever had one of those days where every part of the day just freaked you out and you were scared. I had one of those days on a mission trip. We were in Belize, and we began our day by going to a prison. And, you know, it's like, okay, what's going on here? Why are you here? You know, this kind of thing. But we we arrive at this prison, and uh, I think Joshua's everything, and nobody else. Uh, uh, there was five of us, but we come to this prison gate, and the guard says, "You're going to go through this field over to there." And I'm like, "Aren't you coming?" And he's like, "No, you'll be there's another guard up there. He'll uh, he'll let you through that gate." Well, we're wandering through this prison yard, where there's probably twenty, thirty men with machetes cutting the high grass. But you know, machetes can cut a lot more than high grass. And I'm thinking, "Holy cow, Josh, did you bring your piece? You know, or whatever?" And he didn't. And so then we get into this like, big auditorium, a uh, gymnasium-type place, and there are no guards inside. All the guards are outside, and it's me, Josh, his dad, uh, and two young ladies from college. And I'm thinking, Lord, this is how it ends? Or whatever, you know? So we did that whole thing you know, they're freaked out that whole time, and I'm just going to trust the Lord, you know, and I'll see you soon, Lord, uh, this stuff. <laughs> then we decide to take the afternoon off and go through a hike through the jungle where we find Black Panther footprints that had been like maybe yesterday, perhaps this morning, kind of put into the ground. Uh, and so I was just scared to death that whole day you know, whatever. And it just weighs on you. I don't know if you've been there, but it just sort of weighs on you that at any moment, death is going to come. Well, these guys have been scared to death now for hours. And now they come to this guy and and you have the demon. And of course, with the demons, we have a lot in the scripture about, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but there's quite a bit in the scriptures about the demonic. But even with that, we don't know, we don't understand everything about it. We, we sort of get glimpses here and ideas there, and we put the pieces together as best as we can. And so there's just like this uncertainty about the whole thing. We've seen so far, Mark chapter 1, early in the chapter, where Jesus encountered the man in the synagogue that was demon-possessed, you recall. And Jesus told the man to be quiet, the demon came out of him. We saw in Mark chapter 1, later on, it said that many began to bring those that were oppressed by the demons to Jesus, and he healed them. We saw at the end of Mark chapter 1 that when he went all throughout the region of Galilee, he healed those that were sick and those that had demons. And then we saw again in Mark chapter 3 that anytime Jesus was out and about and the demons saw him, that they came in in the person of whom they were possessing, they came and they fell down before Jesus, and he always told them, be quiet. I'm not interested in you witnessing for me to other people. And so Mark really keys in on a number of different instances. But here now in Mark chapter 5, we have perhaps the most detailed look at what the demonic can do to a person. Jesus' ministry, if you will, involving the demonic was so prevalent that the religious leaders, you recall, had to come up with a reason to explain his power over the demons. And you recall that was the, the very silly idea where they said, well, he, uh, well, there it is. It says he's possessed by Satan, by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And Jesus is like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan cast out Satan? And so on and so forth. And you recall. So it was just so prevalent there. And the Bible recognizes the world of these spiritual beings. And the fact that under certain circumstances and for certain purposes, Those beings have access to the unsaved man or woman or even young person. And the Bible recognizes it, it talks about it, but again, there's no place we can go like like it's a topical Bible and we can turn there and there's five pages explaining it all to us. And so we do our best and we put these things uh, together as much as we can. In Luke chapter 8, this is what we learn about this guy. Luke chapter 8, we realize that this man was possessed by the demonic for a long time. It says there, when Jesus stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons for a long time. He had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house, but instead among the tombs. And so this man was demon-possessed by multiple demons for a long time. We we learn also in the Luke passage here that essentially the man lived like a wild animal. With no clothes on, not in a home, out among the tombs, he lived out there. We learn... That, uh, contrary to human instinct, most of us, when we come into contact with the dead, we get away from that. We do what we need to do with it if we're directly involved, and then we kind of move on. But this man made a home among the dead and the decaying corpses there. He'd become comfortable, if you will, in the environment of death more so than with those in the land of the living, as we might call them. And so we see in Mark 5 3 that he lived among the tombs. We learn that as a result of his demonic possession, that this man had supernatural strength. And we see that in Mark where it says he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. Now the quality of their chains may not have been the same as the quality of our chains, but the people that put them on him expected that they would keep him bound. And so they were pretty good. And yet he had a supernatural strength and was able to tear those shackles apart. We see that he had a developing uncontrollable behavior. Look at Mark 5 3 there. It says, And no one could bind him anymore. That there was a period of time where that worked. That plan of shackling this man worked, but it no longer worked. And he just kept tearing him apart. And then notice this about what these, this, the demons do to this man. Increasingly, they drive him to the place of isolation and ultimately to self-destruction. Now I don't think every person that has any of these kinds of difficulties is necessarily demon-possessed, but it would not surprise me if we learned that they are at the very least demon oppressed that the demons see these things and enjoy it, enjoy enjoy driving people into isolation, enjoy driving people to self-destruction, because one of the things we're going to see, the ultimate desire of these fallen, unclean spirits is to destroy. And the scripture says that's Satan's ultimate desire for this entire world, that he would steal whatever it is God wants to do in a person's life. He would uh, kill those individuals and he would ultimately destroy those individuals, which I think speaks to their eternity. And so here's this fella. He's robbed of family and friends. He's left for dead among the dead and he become has become completely bent on self Destruction. And as I read this, some of us in here, we may have people in mind. I know a guy like that. I know a gal like that. Maybe not demon possessed, but bent on self destruction, a life that is just spiraling out of control, and it's just a matter of time before I'm going to get the phone call that says so and so died. We know people like that in our society. Increasingly, we know people like that in our society. And I'm struck by the way in which the townspeople seek to deal with this man. Because we have to deal with individuals like this. What do the townspeople do? Well, I'm assuming, based on some of the things we see, that at some point in time, they tried to help this guy. In one way or another, they tried to help him uh, so that he could be a part of this society, even though he was sort of outside of the society. At least he could be a part. But notice that by the time we come into contact with this man through this passage, they've given up all effort of trying to help the man altogether. And their efforts now have turned to trying to restrain the man and trying to limit the havoc that this fellow could cause to the rest of them. And to their dismay, I'm sure, every effort to restrain the man, it had failed. They tried to bind him. That simply sought to isolate. Then they sought to isolate him. It says in Luke chapter 8, they put a guard out there with him. One guy hired a rotating shift. Keep him out there. Just keep him away from us. We don't want the problem, the hassle of this guy in our lives. But even that couldn't stop this man's propensity for destruction and terror. We read in one of the parallel passages that anyone that would go anywhere near the vicinity of that graveyard, he would chase them away from that particular area. If there ever was a hopeless case in the Bible, it's this guy hopeless what what could god do in the life of this particular man but i want to show you today from the scripture that we might be encouraged is this is exactly who jesus specializes in give me your most hopeless case and i'll show you what i can do it's exactly who jesus specializes in remember what jesus said in another place and i'll paraphrase it he said i have not come to heal the sick but the well and i have come to rescue sinners And not saints. Give me your hardest problem. I specialize in that, essentially. Verse 6 goes on Now, when Jesus saw, excuse me, when the man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus, that is, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, one of the things that perhaps is confusing about this passage is sometimes when the man speaks, he speaks in the singular. Sometimes when he speaks, he speaks in the plural. So who's talking? Is it the guy talking? Is it the demon talking? Is it a representative of the demons talking? And so we have to kind of like work our way through this to try to figure out what is going on here. But you have this guy, and he comes running. He's there in Gadara, uh, Gerasa, and he comes running down to the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Now, we showed a map a little while ago, and John, if it's not too hard, if you want to bring that back up, that'd be great. Uh, you'll notice on this particular map, you see how some of the portion around the sea is in gray? Well, depending on the water level of the Sea of Galilee, it's either where it is now, where you see it, or it's expanded a little bit further out uh, into the area that's gray. And so sometimes Gadara is a little bit off of the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes it's right near the Sea of Galilee, depending on the water level. And based on our story, it seems that the water level was much higher uh, at the time of this particular account. The other thing about the Sea of Galilee, or excuse me, about the area of Gadara, it has these long sloping hills from from the edge of the water that that kind of go up and form more of a plain up top there. And so this fella here, he comes running down these long sloping hills. I'm not sure how far he had to come, depending on the water level. As soon as he sees uh, this boat, now. Did he know exactly it was Jesus the instance he was up there in the mountains? Has he come to figure it out as he gets closer? We don't necessarily know. But by the time he gets to Jesus, he knows. He's run from afar. He's going to scare these people away as he's been doing everybody else. And it says that he falls down before him, Jesus and the others. If you read the King James Version, it says that he worships him. Now, that word, worships, is translated, I, I usually look at it, uh, this particular website that has about 23 different translations, it's always, almost always translated as falls down or bows down. King James chooses to use the, use the word worships. I think that's unfortunate because we just finished a time of worship. Clearly something different was happening in this particular instance. The word there that is used simply means to bow in the presence of another or to pay homage to another. And so it has this idea of a lesser being recognizing and honoring a greater being. I think of that as being different than worship. And so that's why I like how some of the other versions have translated as he fell down before him. Because that's what he did. Verse 7 says, and he cries out with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? And then adds in that verse, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The word adjure, I don't know if you've used that word lately in your language here. It means to solemnly implore. I'm not that familiar with the word adjure. I kind of thought it meant I command you. It doesn't mean that. So if you thought that, and you're with me. It doesn't mean I command you. These guys don't have authority over Jesus. It means I solemnly implore you. We might say he begged of him. So they recognize their place right from the beginning with who Jesus is and who they are there. They're not dictating terms to Jesus. You're going to tell me who you are, and you're going to get out of here, or anything like this. But they're begging him. They know, the demons know, who Jesus is. In this instance, and in every instance we observe the demonic in the scriptures, they know who Jesus is. And they know the true identity of Jesus better than the religious leaders knew about who Jesus was, but don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, then I guess they must be saved. If they know that Jesus is God, they must be saved or something like that. Obviously, they're not. They, they did not have a saving knowledge of who Jesus is. They knew a lot about him, which I think speaks to a lot of people, particularly in our American culture, that grow up learning a lot of things about Christianity in our culture. There's many of us, probably everyone in this room could pass a test about Christianity. You put out this written test there, and you know, tell me about Christianity or whatever, and you could probably pass a test. Well, I believe there was God and three persons, I can't explain it, but you know, I heard about it Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Jesus died, and we call that Good Friday. And you could you could answer all those questions. You may not be saved. The demons could answer every one of those questions. The demons could acknowledge that Jesus Christ was God, most high in the flesh but they are not saved. James chapter two says this, you believe that God is one? Well, you do well. But don't forget, even the demons believe that God is one, and they shudder. And so they have good theology, if you will, but they're not saved. And so I encourage you, search out your heart. I know a lot about Jesus. Do I know Jesus? Has he forgiven me of my sins? Have I been forgiven of them so that I might enter into his presence when I come to the end of my days? They knew a lot, but they didn't have a saving faith. Now, the scripture says this, Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and of those under, uh, on the earth and of those under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father when this world that we're living on and is spinning around and eventually it stops and it comes to an end, the scripture says that every being that was ever created will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and that that'll be to the glory of God the Father. But we also know from the scripture that not every being will be saved. Not every being will will be saved and enter into eternity in the presence of God. And so there are some that will voluntarily bow the knee. Many of us in this room have done so. We've come to the cross of Jesus Christ in our mind's eye. We've recognized the work that he did on the cross. We've bowed down there and said, you are good, you are holy, you are worthy. I give you my life in exchange for the life that he gave for us. We've bowed down voluntarily. The scripture is very clear, though. Every being will bow down. There'll just be some that'll be forced to bow forced to bow the knee. I always think of this dog that we were trying to train. I'm not sure if it's the one I have now or another one. I'm pretty sure it wasn't the one I have now because he's not trained. Um, (laughs) But we would. somebody taught us, you take his little head and, and you kind of put it down and you hold it there. And then he eventually realizes who's in charge. That's what I picture will happen. Every knee will be forced to bow. Every knee will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that'll be to the glory of God the Father. There'll be those that voluntarily bow the knee And those that are forced to bow the knee. Today is the day of opportunity. If you're not saved, if you haven't been forgiven of your sins, you've never come to the place where you lay down your life and take up his life, you need to do that. And you can do that today. Now, this man is speaking. The words are coming out of his mouth. But as the passage goes on to explain, they're coming from the mind of a different being. So they're coming out of the man's house, but it's the demonic forces that are actually controlling this man and speaking through this man. And perhaps, I I can't say this for certain, perhaps the demons have bought into this idea that if they can declare the name and title of Jesus, they have control of Jesus. That's what some people teach about this passage. That's what some people teach about all the demonic passages that we come into contact with. We've already seen Jesus didn't buy into that idea. Jesus told certain demons, you, get out of here, just go. Never stopped, asked his name, what's your rank, what's your title, so I can have control over you. Jesus is control over these beings here. But these demons, they come running out and they acknowledge, look, we know who you are. You're Jesus. You're son of the most high God. And Jesus here, he he sort of just jumps in and interrupts with this man. He instructs the demons to come out of the man. And then he goes on to ask the man his name. And again, this is where people will say, see, that's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to find out their name so he can have power over them. But notice, Jesus never really learns their name. They say we're legion. Legion's not a name. Legion is a, it's a title. The the Roman Legion was a gathering of soldiers. It ranged anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 soldiers that would go into a particular area and do whatever they were going to (coughs) do. Excuse me. And so the man doesn't answer his name or the demons don't answer their name. They essentially, I, I feel like they're trying to intimidate Jesus. What's my name? Look, what you need to be worried about is how many of us there are because we're not afraid of you. There's thousands of us here, and we'll take it to you, Jesus, if you need to. Also, notice, Jesus, he never goes on to say, no, what's your name? I need to know it so that I can have power over you. He never does that. Jesus doesn't buy in to that false idea, which continues still to this day. It wasn't even taught in the Scripture, and yet it continues still to this day. I think if we carefully read this passage, it leads me to believe that there's sort of this interaction that Jesus is trying to have with the man, but the demons, in their rudeness, keep interrupting. And so I've, here's what I think is going on. Jesus is trying to talk to the man. What's your, what's your name? He's trying to give the man a level of his humanity back that he hadn't had for years, likely, as he was. everybody else just hid their kids from this guy. And threw him out into the woods and shackled him. And now he's living out and talking to dead bodies, is what he does now for a living. And Jesus is coming into him and saying, uh, coming up to him and saying, What's your name? Because he wants to interact with him and he wants to care for him. And the demons, rudely, they jump in. Don't listen to him. We're legion, we're many. Be intimidated, Jesus. Jesus is not intimidated. It's as if they're saying, Look, you think you're going to defeat us? Do you have any idea how many of us are inside of this man? Do you have any idea, like a Roman legion, how organized we are, how united we are, how powerful we are? You think you can just get on some boat, come over here, and you'll be fine? Beneath the name that they give, I think, the title they give is a threat. But Jesus isn't intimidated, and the demons quickly realize that, because notice they quickly transition, verse 10, and they begin to beg Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Luke chapter 8, the parallel passage tells us that as don't send us out of the country, but don't send us to the abyss. They don't want to go there. Matthew chapter 8, that passage tells us as part of their plea, they say, don't send us to torment before the time. And so you have all these pieces that are kind of coming together by reading the parallel passages here, is these uh, demons, they don't want to be sent to the abyss, the pit, to be tormented as they await their final judgment. And so let's talk a little bit about this. The abyss that they're speaking of, it is mentioned repeatedly in the scripture. Particularly you find it in the book of Revelation where there's all sorts of demonic activity that is going on as Satan sort of unleashes his minions in that particular book there. And we read of the abyss in Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 14. You can make reference to that. We read of it in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, verse 7, and in chapter 17, verse 8, and then it comes up on two more occasions in chapter 20. Reference to this abyss. Now, the abyss is the pit. That's literally what the word means. And it will be the place. You heard about the millennium. You've heard about that thousand-year reign of sort of glory on the earth, where Jesus Christ will reign here on the earth. Well, part of the reason why it'll be the sinless society is because Satan will be bound for a period of a thousand years. You know where he's going to be bound? In the abyss, in the pit. Revelation chapter 20 points that out to us. And as you put sort of all these pieces together, we, we begin to piece together that there are some demonic spirits that are bound in this place of confinement, even now, awaiting their final judgment, as Satan, during that thousand-year period of time, is awaiting his final judgment. And these demons now, in the Mark 5 passage, they're begging Jesus, don't send us there to that abyss. We don't want to be bound there. We want to continue to wreak our havoc we want to cause trouble. We want to kill, steal, and destroy as many as we can before the time when we'll no longer be able to do so. That's their goal. John chapter 10 tells us this, that the thief, now that's a, it's a clear reference, read the passage, to Satan. The thief comes to only to steal, to kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I've come that they might have life abundantly. That's Satan's ultimate goal for every single human being if he can get at them. And if Jesus Christ intervenes in, the, in, the, in between time, and now we are his children, well, then his new goal for us becomes to make us as, uh, as ineffective as possible so that he can continue to destroy others that are out there. And that's what these demons are trying to do. And both Satan and his minions, they, they know that their time, there is a determined time when they shall be judged. We read this in 2 Peter 2. It says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Now that word there is commonly translated the abyss. And so we, we might have a different thinking of hell as sort of the final judgment place. Here we're talking about the abyss, the pit and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, what's going to happen to the ungodly? And so notice, there's this pit where demons will be sent, and they'll be kept until the day of the final judgment. These guys here, these demons here, are desperately desiring from the Lord, don't send us there. We want to be kept from that place of confinement. We still want to terrorize and torture as many as we can. And so they beg, As verse 11 will go on to say, and 12, to go into the pigs. Deviled ham was what we were thinking of as having in the sermon title. My wife said that would be stupid. Um, (laughs) But here's why. Verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Thank you, Susan. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. It's kind of a strange request. Why would they want to go into the pigs? I think it's stranger still that the Lord says, okay, go into the pigs here, but these demons... Who apparently, and again, we don't know every single thing about demons, apparently dread being disembodied completely. And so they desire, put us into anything possible. They beg that they might enter into this herd of pigs. Notice how quickly their tone had changed. They came out all mouthy in the beginning. We know who you are, you know, we're not impressed or whatever. And now they're desperately begging the Lord. Send us into the pigs. Send us something. The Lord demonstrates his ultimate mastery over them. Again, they desperately want to possess something because I think what's their ultimate desire? They want to use a person, this case the pigs or whatever, as an instrument of destruction. Somebody compared them to this little analogy. They say demons want to inhabit human bodies for the same reasons a vandal wants a spray can because they just want to cause trouble and destruction somewhere. And to a demon, a body, whether it's a human or a pig or what have you, it's a weapon that they can use in attacking God and the image bearers of God, which is humanity, each one of us. And so Jesus gives them permission. You see that there in verse 13. And people criticize the Lord for this. I can't believe Jesus would kill all these pigs. What a horrible. Let me ask you, how much bacon have you had this uh, last year? You've killed plenty of pigs yourself. All right, here. But notice, Jesus didn't kill these pigs. The demons kill these pigs. Jesus doesn't cause this destruction, he permits this destruction. And the demons, as it says there, they fill these pigs. There's about 2,000 of them. Interesting. The minimum number of a Roman legion was 2,000. And that's caused some people to conclude there was at least 2,000 demons inside of this guy. That may be the case. There could have been a hundred demons inside of this guy and you know a hundred pigs started running around and the rest of them said where are we going you know and they ran around too you know it doesn't that's not really the point is to really like narrow down well how many exactly were in this guy a lot were in this guy and the demons they race off they die they drown there in the water and then what happens to the demons well the text doesn't say and so we might presume that without a body now to inhabit, that they were forced to proceed to the abyss. We could presume that, but it, there would be nothing more than a presumption. The text doesn't say necessarily what happened to the pigs. It does tell us what happened to the herdsmen, so I'm going to move on. Uh, and it says that the herdsmen, they get get out of here. This is scary. Uh, and so the herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. It seems to me that they just run for their lives. And some start going this way, some start going that way. Maybe there's two of them, maybe there's 10 of them. Some go into the city, some go into the country, and they just want to get out of the tombs is what they want to do. And they begin to get in there. People are like, "What are you coming from? Why are you all freaking out? What's the matter? And it says in verse 14, And the people came to see what it was that had happened and they came to Jesus, and so now they come out, they've heard the story, they come out. They come to Jesus, they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the, had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to, excuse me, and to the pigs, and they began <coughs> to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The herdsmen give a report. I suspect they weren't the most coherent witnesses. I suspect words weren't flowing out clearly um, from them. They're just sort of, pigs, demon, legion, man, you know, or whatever. Like, what's going on? You know, like Lassie, like, come rescue, you know. And so they come following Lassie out there to find out what's going on. And they get out there, and there are these Jewish guys. They likely don't know who Jesus is over there here. But they they begin to piece all the pieces together. And they see the the man that was demon-possessed. I picture him now with like a blanket over him or something. It says that he's clothed here, but he's not naked. He's not screaming. He's not cutting himself. He's not chasing people away, but he's sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And it says to us that the, the people are freaked out by that. Oh, my gosh. What kind of power could do in two minutes with a word that this whole village was trying to do for years and even with chains and the like. You remember when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee a little while ago and the the storm was calmed? They they begin to ask themselves, who then is this? That even the sea listens to this guy. I suspect the townspeople are saying, who then is this? That even the demonic listen to this guy. That even the most evil of the evil spirits obey this guy. And our passage reveals to us Jesus' absolute authority in this case over the demonic, and it freaks out the town people. The townspeople are more fearful of Jesus' ability to calm this demon-possessed man than they were of the demon-possessed man, as fearful as they were of him. Because here is this freed man, once so wild and once so fierce, that's now gentle and quiet. And what is their response? Well, they beg Jesus to leave. That makes sense, doesn't it? It doesn't really make sense. You're just being nice to me, uh, thinking that's what I want from you. Sit down, you know, whatever here. And so uh, that doesn't make sense. But Jesus is interrupting, if you will, what they have become used to, what they have become comfortable with. This works for me. This is sort of the life our town has built and has developed. And we take people like this, crazed, demon-possessed man, men, and we lock them up and we force them to live amongst the tomb so our problem is away from us. This is how our life goes here. And Jesus comes in, and you know what, man? I don't really know who you are and what you're doing, but I know I'm uncomfortable right now, and so I'd prefer you just leave. And sadly, many people do that with Jesus Christ. They see the work of Christ in the lives of other people, they see other people's lives being radically transformed, and they say to themselves, look, I don't know who you are, I don't know fully what you're about, but I've seen how you've disrupted this guy's life, and I don't want you to disrupt my life. Just get out of here. And they drive Jesus away. It's, it's, it's a peculiar part of the story, but it's the saddest part of the story at the same time. I can't help but think there's a level here also of 2,000 pigs. What's a pig go for 50 bucks, 100 bucks or something here, man, you just cost us a lot of money. And for them, the money was more important to them, perhaps, than this man. And you know what, man, look, I'm sorry that the guy lived that way, you know, that's that's rough and all that, we tried to help him as much as we can, but look, that man's life is not worth $20,000, and you just cost me $20,000, you need to get out of here. And so perhaps that's part of the reason why they drive this fellow out here. Jesus had become to them too costly of a guest, and so Jesus must go. And again, how many people, even in our day, they continue to reject the Lord because the cost of following the Lord is too high for them? You mean I'll have to stop that thing and that thing? That's not worth it to me. You mean I'll have to live my life in such a way that I lay down my life daily? Well, that's not worth it to me. And the cost becomes too high. And so they push Jesus away. They saw here what Jesus could do with the most hopeless of situations. And there was a tremendous opportunity placed before them. Imagine if Jesus could heal this man, the most hopeless of circumstances, imagine what he could do with each of their circumstances. Jesus healed a crazed demoniac. He set him back into his right mind once again. Imagine what he could do with their troubled marriages. To me, that seems like an easy one, doesn't it? Compared to the crazed demoniac. Imagine what he could do with their conflicted relationships that they had. Imagine how he could intervene with their sinful proclivities. If Jesus could change this guy, he could transform any guy. But sadly, they might never know that to be the case. Because instead of bringing themselves before the Lord, they drove the Lord away. And Jesus here, he gets in his boat, it says, and he departs. It says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who was even says runs up to him. But what's Jesus doing? He's getting in the boat to leave. Now, let me just make a quick aside here. Do you notice that about the whole incident? Jesus sails all the way across the Sea of Galilee. He endures a perilous storm, which in the minds of his disciples is almost going to kill them. He goes to the other side there, gets out, interacts with one man, and then he gets back in the boat, and he sails back to where he had come from. That Jesus had done all of this for one man. Isn't that sweet? You know, we, we say that about the Lord. If you were the only one on earth, Jesus would have came and he would have died for you. That idea, this text, proves that idea. Jesus Christ did all of this for one man. He left his place in eternity where he didn't need anything to make himself better or anything like that. Well, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm God here, but imagine if I was God and savior. How cool that would be. So I'm going to he doesn't gain from his loss. It's all our reward. He saves our souls in that particular way here. He would go through all that trouble just for you. For every one of us in this room, praise the Lord. Verse 18 goes on. It says, "So as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, That he might be with him. And he did not, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone began to marvel. I think that maybe one of the saddest parts of this whole story is Jesus listened to the request of the townspeople. If you think of request like a prayer. Jesus answered their prayer. They said, get out of here. We don't want you here. Leave. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He left. There's such an interesting juxtaposition between the response of the man and the response of the town pe- townspeople. Both of them essentially observed what Jesus had done. One of them says, get out of here. The other one says, can I come with you? There's well, such, a, such a difference here between these two here. But this new convert, begs the Lord that he might go with him. And, and notice what Jesus says to him, verse 18. Uh, the man who had been possessed with the demon said, let me come with you, begs him to come with him. And Jesus says, no. He says, no, I want you to stay here instead. He says I want you to go to your family. I want you to go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Now, that's a worthy request on his part. I want to drop everything and I want to come for, with you. It's not like he had a whole lot, but he says, I want to come with you. It's an additional evidence of what God had done in this man's life, but it wasn't according to the will of the Lord for him to come with them. And so instead of Jesus saying, yes, you can come with me, Jesus sends him home. And he says, I want you to be a living witness of God's great power and mercy. Again, what a contrast between the townspeople and Jesus. And Jesus rejects the man's request And he says, look, I have a more important ministry for you to do. Instead of you sailing along and sitting in the back of the boat and so on, I want you to go to your family, and I want you to go to your community. I want you to go home and tell these people, let them see in you the reality of God's touch upon your life. And how does the man respond? Well, it tells us, verse 20, he went away and he began to proclaim. The man obeys. What a good sign that God is working in someone's life, that they obey. It's a mark of God's work in our lives is that we obey. The man doesn't sulk. He doesn't complain. I can't believe this. Why won't you let me come? You did what they wanted. You know, why won't you do what I want? He doesn't sulk. He doesn't complain. He doesn't whine. He doesn't say it's not fair. How come all these guys get to go with you and I don't get to go with you? He doesn't say this, which sometimes I think we're tempted to say, look, if you won't answer my prayer the way I want you to answer my prayer, well, then I'm not following you, and I want nothing to do with you. But instead, Jesus says, no, you can't come with me, but I want you to go home. I have a job for you. Go home and tell your family and friends how good the Lord has been to you. And the man says, you got it, Lord. You got it, Lord. If that's your will for me, that's what I will do. He went away, and he began to proclaim. The man went, he obeyed. And he went away testifying to any that would hear what God had done in his life. This man becomes the first missionary to the area of the Decapolis, to the Gentiles of that region of the Sea of Galilee. And when we get to Mark chapter 7, and we read about it again in, Mark chapter, in Matthew, I should say, chapter 15, toward the end of Jesus' life, when, we, when Jesus comes back to this region, masses flock to him. So here the masses flocked to him and said, get out of here. We don't want you here. Later on, they flocked to him and say, we've heard so much about you. How did they hear so much about him? This man. He was an obedient missionary, and he was an effective missionary. And by the power of his life transformed, people observed that and were drawn to Jesus Christ themselves. He went preaching a gospel and he preached a gospel that every one of us in this room can preach because that command of Jesus go home to your friends tell everyone how good God has been to you that's God's standing command to every one of us that are Christians in this room go home and talk to the people at the grocery store and talk to your kids and talk to your neighbor and talk to the people in the cubicle next to you go home and tell everyone how good God has been to you that's what this guy did that's what he knew that's what he could preach he didn't get all bogged down and, well, what will I say if they say this? And what if they bring up this topic and I don't know an answer? He just simply presented what God had done in his life to them. No doubt he went and got a book and he read about that other stuff because everyone kept asking about those other things and didn't know how to answer. No doubt he did some further study later on. But what, he did what he could. And he said, look, you need to know I was lost. I was a mess. But now I'm found. Jesus Christ has changed my life. I love this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in the Scripture because it shows us, I think, a variety of things that, that spur me on and that motivate me. Number one, that shows me this. It shows us, all of us, the value of one life to Jesus Christ. Jesus went all the way across the Sea of Galilee. He went through all of those things that he went through there out on the Sea of Galilee, and he did so for one person. And so this passage shows us the value of one life to Jesus Christ. Obviously, the application, your life. But I want to encourage you, now that if you're a Christian, what about those people that you come in contact with? If at the end of your days you've reached one person for Jesus Christ, you've lived a life worth living. Because one life for all eternity is changed because of the ministry that you could have, the value of one life. Sometimes we we don't do anything unless, like, well, if I can reach thousands, then I'll do it. Just reach one. And I guarantee you you reach one, you're going to likely reach two and four and six and eight and so on and so forth. Secondly, I love this account of scripture because it reveals that with Jesus, no one is beyond hope. I suspect each one of us in here, and maybe this will be a good exercise for you to do, is take some time and think through one person that you think they'll never get saved. That person is beyond hope. There's no way that they're going to turn to the Lord. You can think of other people, yeah, they'll probably come around. They're a nice enough person. But I imagine there's one person, each of us here, that think is beyond hope. If we asked the townspeople of Gadara, they would have wrote down the demon-possessed man that lives out in the tombs. And yet Jesus went in. And if he could change that man, he can change anyone. I'm fortunate that I know so many of you in this room, and I know your stories. And it's so exciting for me from time to time to just sort of pull back and think what God has done in the lives of the people of this congregation. And so you may not know this, but in this room, we have former drug addicts that are now clothed and in their right mind, to borrow the expression. We have folks in this room that, are, that they literally burned their minds out on acid and they were subsequently touched and healed by the Lord and now used by the Lord. We have folks in this room that were delivered out of homosexuality and bisexuality. We have folks in this room that were delivered out of a life of fornication and extramarital affairs, even. We have husbands and wives in this room that previously despised one another. And they told any of us in this room that would listen. And we were familiar with their stories. But through Jesus Christ, their marriages have been healed, their hearts have been healed. And God has brought them together and united them in a way they had never been united before. There are folks in this room that were previously in the grips of pornography. And they've been delivered from the bondage of that sin. And they've been empowered by Christ to walk each day with him free from that sin. We have formerly, and we have a lot of these here, formerly self-seeking, materialistic, worldly people. It describes a lot of us. It describes me certainly who have caught a heart for God and are now dedicating their lives to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Listen, Jesus still radically transforms people as he did 2,000 years ago there on the seas of the shore of Galilee or on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He still radically transforms lives and that's why I love this passage so much because it reminds us of that. And the third reason why this account of Scripture just really blesses my heart is because it shows us that God can use anyone. And God took this formerly demon-possessed man, certainly with a less-than-perfect past, and he commissioned him, and he sent him out, and God used him. And the work of God, a good reminder, the work of God always has to begin with someone. And who better than those whose lives are an undeniable testimony of the power of God? Never forget where you came from. Never forget what God has done in your life. Never forget how he has transformed you. Communicate that message with anyone that will listen. Why shouldn't God work in your little circle and your little society through you? Why not work through you? It always begins somewhere. Amen? Well. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.